And so we're in our study now of First uh, John, and uh, we're in the, the fifth chapter. We're coming down the last uh, couple of weeks of First John. We got Second John and Third John to go through that. And uh, John, when he writes, tends to be a little bit repetitive. Uh, and, and Paul's the same way. And the large part of that is, is for the purpose of restating things, making parallel statements, trying to put things in a position that people will understand and comprehend. When you get to the fifth chapter, you're kind of coming to a summation of what he's already said. Uh, and I always want to remind you, when I, and because this is such a part of First John, and, and, and pastors who don't recognize this or, or teach it this way are really missing out. In the background of all of this is this false teaching, this heresy that I've shared with you now for many weeks called Gnosticism based on the Greek word gnosis, knowledge. And Gnosticism is it takes a special knowledge to understand whatever way of God there is. Never know what that knowledge is. They never tell you it, but... but Salvation, and they don't look at salvation as the way a Christian would, but I'm going to use the term salvation because it's clearest for us, is based not on faith. It's not based on the work of God, the sovereignty of God, uh, the grace of God. It's based on you having the right knowledge of whatever that knowledge is. And part of that knowledge is based on understanding that the world is dualistic. In other words, the world is both a spiritual and a physical. The physical is always that which is sensual, it's evil, it's wrong. Um, whatever that may mean, and the spiritual is always that which is good. With that understanding, that the physical never, never really impacts the spiritual, so they, you could live your life however you wanted. You could live with as much sin, you could live however, do whatever, believe whatever you wanted, as long as you had the right knowledge, you, it, it didn't affect the spiritual, which is totally antagonistic and, and the exact opposite of what Christianity teaches, that the physical and spiritual are inseparable, one affects the other. As such, their fundamental belief about Jesus, and it really, even in the Christianity, they didn't really care about Jesus much. They just hijacked Christianity as a way uh, to get kind of their parasitical philosophy across. But within Christianity, Jesus then was a human. Uh, he was not God in the flesh. But at his baptism, in essence, the spirit, the emanation of of, of God would come upon him, and at his death he would leave. So, you know, you don't, you don't have God being born in the flesh, uh, which is what we teach, God in the flesh, incarnation, nor do you have God dying on the cross and be raised back to life, the resurrection. So, in, in Gnosticism, incarnation and resurrection doesn't exist. If you don't have incarnation and resurrection of Christianity, that's just, that's just kind of a fact. With that in mind, then, we have seen several kind of uh, just tests that John has put out, especially in chapter 4. How do you know someone's a true Christian? This is, this is important. How do you know someone's a true believer? By the way, one of the great things about First John is that it's really a good book for brand new Christians, or, or if you've been out of the faith for a while, First John is just like a, a, a beginning textbook about Christianity 101. In fact, it's a book all of us should read. You know, I, I read First John on a regular basis to be reminded of the things that matter. Sometimes in our lives, sometimes uh, even as a pastor, it is easy to get pulled apart into different discussions and, and, and philosophical debates, theological debates, the stuff I read, the conversations that go on within the good Christian life, within the denominational life, all this stuff. It, it, you get pulled in all these things, and sometimes you've got to go back and say, time out, time out, time out. None of that matters. What's in First John matters. And so I love to read First John. It's just a book that gets me right back where I need to be. And, fifth, and, the, and the fifth chapter of First John is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, because here's the summation 
It brings you right back. And next week we'll see a, a passage of unbelievable uh, of confidence and in in giving you assurance of your salvation. So 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 begins this way. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the children born of him. So he kind of gives a summation of everything he's talked about. Whoever believes, whoever has faith, John uses the term believe as much as anybody. Uh, believe in faith, same basic word. Faith is a noun, belief is a verb. It's the idea of trusting. You see uh, uh, Paul used the word faith a lot, having faith, the faith. Uh, you see John using the word believe, the, the verbal form of that, of trusting. Whoever has put their trust that Jesus is the Christ. Now, it was the Christ, is the Christ. And this then is just to the heretical teaching of the Gnostics, just the, the major point of, of making a distinction. Christianity is predicated on an understanding. I mean, cross, and I'm preaching that on Sundays, and I got that. But it's predicated on an understanding that Jesus is the Christ of God. He is the Messiah. To the Jew, to the Gentile, it does not matter. He is the Christ. That's why in chapter 4, he said one of the tests to know whether someone's faith system, their belief system, the philosophy is legitimate, is do they believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do they believe that he is the one who has come in the flesh, fully God, fully man? Do you believe that? It's a fundamental understanding. Everything in our life, I'm preaching on Sundays, everything in Christianity comes back to the cross, and that is, that is true. But also understand that when we say it comes to the cross, it comes to the person who is on the cross, and that is Jesus. And everything about Jesus comes to who he is. He is God in the flesh. He is then the Christ. By who he is and what he did, by his nature and by his action, he is the Christ. And so you must believe that. If you believe that, then you're born of God. You're born again. You're saved. And as a result of that, as a result of that faith and that believing, then you love the Father Love the children of the Father, the children of God, of him. You love God and you love people. <clears throat> if you remember, right, right before the, the cross, that week of the cross, they came to test Jesus. What's the great commandment? Love God, love others. Now, the loving of others, as he states, is that loves the children born of him. You know, love one another. And Jesus kind of states that because that's the beginning point. And he's talking to the church. So he's saying, you guys got to love one another. But the love of one another is, spills out into the love of the community, the love of people. We have to love and care for people. <laughs> Loving people is the essential, essential evangelistic element of the faith. I understand it's sharing the gospel. I understand we share the gospel. I got that. I got that. And we got to tell people about the, you know, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I understand all that. But I'm telling you this. If there is no love... If there is no love in your interaction with people, the gospel that comes from your mouth simply won't matter to them. They have to see at the heart of your presentation of the gospel is you love them. That means when their lifestyle is different from yours, their habits are different from yours, their belief system is different from yours, the things they do is different from you. To scold to condemn a lost person and in that process think that you can cram the gospel down their throat, throat is a loser's game. Once in a while, 
It may work, but the vast majority of time it doesn't. And I can take you to church after church after church, some in this town, because I know where they are, who that is what they do. And I can also take you to those churches that they're small and they're dying and nobody outside of a few families that go there want any part of that. I guarantee I don't. And if I wasn't preaching, if I was just one of a few folks, you know, and I wasn't serving you the way that I do, I would run from a church like that as far as I could go. And so this is the thing in chapter 5, verse 1, that sums all that up. What do you believe about Jesus? And do you love the people that God sent Jesus to die for? Remember John three sixteen. God so loved the world, it means he loved the lost. And if God loves the lost, so should we. Next week I'm preaching, not this Sunday, the following Sunday from John 5, 8, uh, Romans 5, 8. God showed his great love while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can we say we show our great love that while people are still sinners, we share Jesus, but we love him. Verse 2 then. By this we know the love of the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, there's a lot of, you know, what do the commandments mean? Does it refer to the Ten Commandments? Does it refer to two of Jesus? It never really is clear. There's a lot of debate. I would simply say this. Anything that God has said we ought to do, we ought to do. Now, All the Jewish (laughs) dietary laws and all that didn't apply to us. That's the Jews. I'm just saying in a general sense, we begin with love God, love others. We begin with share the gospel and make disciples of all the nations. We we begin there. We live a lifestyle that conforms to the teaching of Christ. We certainly, as a follower of Jesus, I I want to follow the Ten Commandments. Because those, those Jesus didn't wipe them off. They don't save me. But I want to live in a way that honors God. This is how I look at at it. Am I doing that which honors God? If the answer is no, then somehow I'm violating whatever that commandment of God might be. I I may not even know which commandment it is. It doesn't matter. Am I doing that which dishonors God? Verse 4, whatever is born of God or comes from God overcomes the world. That is the world in opposition to him. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. James sums it all up. How how does all this come about? Quite simply, faith. We have faith. Reformers, starting with Luther, in in the face of all that was happening within the church that had become corrupted, said it is faith alone. Faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone. The alones, faith, grace, you know, that we come to God. Scripture teaches us that, but it is through faith. We are saved through faith. It is the fundamental message of the Apostle John. We must believe our faith. That is where salvation is. It's not our works. It's not our deeds. It's not what we do. It is simply faith. So that in verse 5, he says this. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Christ. That's ultimately it. Ultimately, the one sure test in understanding a person's salvation, whether they're going to be victorious over the world, is not what they mentally think about Jesus. It's not that. It's whether or not they have believed or have trusted Christ 
to be the Savior. That, that's really what that means. The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Paul says this. If you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised you from the dead, you'll be saved. You've got to believe that Jesus is Lord. He's, he's the Son of God. Jesus, it is John who reminds us. And I shared this in a, in a funeral service yesterday I was reading that Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He is God in the flesh. So it all comes down to that. And, and like I said, belief is not just the mental part. It is the totality of our life. It is both the spiritual and the physical commitment. Completely opposite of whatever the Gnostics would teach. That total commitment of self is evidence of our faith. Now, verse 6 to 12 is a little bit tricky. And uh, it's, it's one of those odd things. John words some things in kind of an odd way. That is foreign to the way we would word or think about things in the world and in, in our culture today as Christians. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, that I, I, I've never preached a message on these next few verses because I, it, it, it's really difficult to try to get across the meaning, especially to people who may not be believers. And whenever I preach a message, I have to be really concerned uh, on Sundays because we have lost people there. And I, I have to be careful how I lead, you know, what I say and, how, and what I preach. So that's why we do things a little bit deeper on Wednesday nights. But... Uh, in starting verse 6, he says, and, and understand, this is in light of the Gnostics who deny Jesus as God in the flesh. So he says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness or testifies. And the word testifies is used nine times in the next six, seven verses. Because the Spirit is the truth. So, let's talk about this, what he means by the water and the blood. There are three basic understandings. There's a fourth that not usually mentioned. I'm a little attracted to from another passage, but not here. One, it can refer to baptism and the communion of the believer, the, 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 what some would call the sacraments. It refers to when we take, when we were baptized, when we're baptized, he gives testify, we testify in when we take the Lord's Supper, Baptist, we take the Lord's Supper, some call communion, because we, that, the, the cup holds the blood. And some of the reformers, Luther and Calvin, looked at it that way. Uh, it, it's just, it doesn't really fit with the overall context and the idea of, of, of referring to uh, the Lord's Supper, communion as the blood. It's just, it's just, it doesn't work. It's just not, it's nonsensical, really. Augustine um, and others from early, early times thought it referenced the, the stabbing of Jesus in the side when the blood and the water came out. And there's still some today that refer to it that way. That at his crucifixion, the pouring out of the water and the blood gave witness to it. And there is there, that he was truly Christ upon on the cross. And there, there's some t- truth to that. But the better understanding uh, is that the water refers to baptism and the blood refers to the crucifixion. Now understand this. John is, is, is writing a letter that deals with the Gnostics. One of those Gnostics in Ephesus, which John was, Serenthus, denied that uh, Jesus was truly God in the flesh. They said that Jesus was this human. At baptism, the, Holy Spirit, the, the, the Christ Spirit came upon him, and at the crucifixion it left. 
So this is what John is saying. He's saying there are two things that give testimony or bear witness to the validity that Jesus is the Christ. One was that is baptism. In just a minute, we're going to see a reference to the Spirit. At the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was not the Spirit of Christ who came upon him. At his baptism, it was the recognition that he was the Christ. The baptism, I said this a few weeks, a couple of Wednesday nights ago, the baptism of Jesus began his ministry. It was the beginning point of ministry. It was not the beginning point of him being, for a brief period of time, Christ. The Holy Spirit came to affirm that God said, this is my beloved son. He's talking about son in the sense of the title. He's God in the flesh. So the baptism of Jesus is a testimony to his Christ. Then the crucifixion, likewise, he died on the cross. His blood was shed. He took our sins upon him. He was, you know, the, the, the spirit of Christ did not leave at that point, as, as the Gnostics would, take, would say. But it was Jesus dying, and then with the crucifixion comes the resurrection. Resurrection is always, you don't separate the crucifixion and the resurrection as one event. So the cross event, the crucifixion and resurrection gives testimony. He is the Christ. So how do we know that Jesus is the Christ? His baptism and his crucifixion give testimony to that. Now in John is writing, even though the audience is primarily Gentile, with the background of Judaism, within Judaism, if there were ever two witnesses, and you had to have two witnesses in a court of law for something to be valid. He's giving two witnesses, and he's going to give the third. Now he comes, and he's going to give the third as well. He says, in actuality, there are three that testify. The word testify comes from the Greek word martyrios. We get a word martyr from, and a martyr was a witness when he testified. He said this, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. So there's the Spirit testified at baptism as well as the blood at crucifixion. Let me just say this. Yeah, I'll do it. There is, there is a tendency, and I, and I tend to do this, and I, and I may be, and I'm and hugely in a minority. There's another place where there's talking about the water and the blood. Water can also refer to birth, okay? Because there, there's, there's water at birth. And uh, so there, there could, and, and here's the thing about John. John is great at things having double meanings, okay? He all, he's all, a lot of his things have du- double meanings. It's just calm. He, he's a master craftsman of that. And so I think there's a little bit, this is just me, so don't, don't. You know, don't bet your salvation. I'm right on it. I'm just this is me. But I am of that group that think there's also, because of the Gnosticism, an allusion to the fact that he is, at his birth, he was born the Christ too. It's baptism is the dominant thing. Go with that. Always go with that. But I, I can't get away from, I can't get away from the understanding that because birth is water and the Gnostics denied that God would be born into the world. I think there's a little, I, I think there's a little of that. Just a little. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. The, the, the Gnostics were just men testifying. And John says the testimony of God is greater. 
For God, the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. How has he gave witness concerning his son? Remember, he's using the test word testify over and over and over. There's a reason for the emphaticness of this. Why he's doing this over and over. He's saying this is a witness. This is a testify. This is the truth that's coming from God. It's the water. It's the blood. It's the spirit. And the one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. If you have faith, the testimony of all three of these dwell within you because of the Holy Spirit of God. But the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given concerning his son. This is similar to what you see in, in uh, 1 John chapter 1 where if you say you don't sin, you make God to be a liar. So here's what he's saying. The Gnostics, like many false teachers, by the way, most false teachers will tell you they have a way to help you get to God. And John is saying, if you deny the fundamental truth about Jesus, not only are you not able to help someone come to God, but you are a liar because you are in opposition to God. You Oppose the truth. You're not just opposing the truth. This is, this is critical, what John's saying. You are opposing the witness of God himself. At the baptism of Jesus, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. To deny who Jesus is is to argue against God. I say this all the time, but I don't know where I stand always on a a discussion, but I'm going to find out what side God's on. I'm going there. If you ever find yourself disagreeing with God, you need to completely abandon what you're believing and go with God because God is always right every time. And I think one of the things that I look at and I see so often creeping into side of Christianity is this abandonment of understanding and believing what God says. My wife read something yesterday, and uh, she read it to me, and I'm like, what? She was reading, and there's some pastor, he's pretty liberal, obviously, and he's obviously lost his all get out, who said that, that in Mark 7, Jesus made a... a a statement towards a woman, a racist statement towards a woman. And when the woman corrected him, Jesus repented. <laughs> okay. Well, that chapter, that's in Mark 7. It's talking about the Syrophoenician woman. When she asked for him to heal the daughter, and he said, you don't give, you don't give the bread to the dogs. And she said, well, even the dogs want the crumbs. And he said, you go ahead. Faith has worked. And obviously that person, the pastor who said that, is ignorant as the day is long. And I don't know, I don't have enough words that I can actually say inside church to describe him that I can get away with, so I won't. When your mind and your heart become so warped against truth that you begin to see Jesus in need of repentance. What does the scripture Paul say? He who knew no sin became sin. You only repent from sin. You don't repent from being right. You know, you know, you know. In fact, the whole, he so misunderstood that he didn't get anything right. I mean, she, you know, 
It's just it's his understanding that it was so bizarre. There's not even I don't even know how he gets it from. It just shows you there are people out there who claim to be within the faith, who are lost. And and Jesus talked about it in Matthew seven at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, "There were wolves who will come to you in sheep's clothing." And he used a mixed metaphor. Yeah, he can do whatever he wants, Jesus. So I've used mixed metaphor. I've been corrected on that. I said, I'm deciding with Jesus on this one. If he used a mixed metaphor, I can use a mixed metaphor. He said, good fruit doesn't, I mean, a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit. And thorns bushes don't produce grapes and vice versa. And then he said, you got to watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing. He put a couple of metaphors that he was effective. Be so careful today within the world of Christianity that you understand the difference between the wolf and the sheep, the good fruit and the bad fruit. One of the reasons we work so hard to keep things simple is because there is so much out there that is godless and sinful and all of it gets complicated. It is it, it, that sin, that false teaching is almost always complicated. And you need these guys to straighten it out and simplify and explain it to you. And the truth of the matter is, this is the beauty of the gospel. It is so simple. The gospel is simple. It's not complicated. Love God, love others. Give your life to Jesus. Trust him as your savior. Go bear witness. I mean, it's not complicated. And so what John is reminding them is these heretics have made it so complicated. And he's saying it is so simple. Is Jesus the Christ or not? Yes or no? Do you love God and love other people? Yes or no? And here's the test. Do you believe and agree with the water and the blood and the spirit, which all testify he's the Christ? So verse 11 says this. And his testimony is this, God, I love this, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, and he who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Gnostics said that you come to God through right knowledge, and John said God just gives us eternal life, but he does it through the Son that they deny. He does it through Jesus who is the Christ. They deny he's the Christ, but this is how God gives us eternal life. And so if you're going to deny that Jesus is the Christ, you are denying eternal life. He who has the Son then has the life. And if you don't have the Son, you don't have eternal life. And John talks about eternal life all the time. It is life to the fullest. It is life that passes through the ages. It is salvation. And John can't make it any clearer. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, as evidenced by your love, you don't have eternal life. You have all the knowledge you want, but you're as lost as you can be. Uh, we have a couple of minutes. Do you have any questions? Be happy to answer. If not, I'll let you out a couple of minutes early, which is always the sign of a really good speaker. See you later. Bye-bye.